that that's got to be a weird feeling is that you realize you were in handcuffs you were kicked off you were charged and now you're back i mean you talk about trust issues i mean inherently oh, yeah. they were laughing in the office you know the the the, the cars that were in the parking lot you know <laughs> like i you know i i didn't earn i didn't earn a, i didn't earn an absurd amount of money and i basically drove the same car driving into that job as the one that I left with it, left that job just for discretion purposes. Uh, but some of the absurdity you would see in those parking lots after, after these changes were made, it was pretty fascinating. You know, the overt nature of the corruption was like, Oh yeah, we're not going to hide anymore. Let's let's take my Hummer H2 to work. You know, um, uh, it, uh, I was sent to work for the governor for a bit, and I did. I basically ran security for the governor of Baja for about four years, three years to be exact. Um, so I took care of him and his family. Did a great job there. Um, the man was amazing. Uh, his family was amazing. Uh, they did a lot of. They did a lot of good for the for the the state as well. Was he highly targeted? Uh, yeah, he was. He was very targeted. Uh, I ran a protection detail that was based off uh, Mohammed Karzai's detail in Afghanistan. Exactly. Basically that's the same detail profile that we ran for the governor of Baja during that time. Wow. So he's dodging bullets too. Oh yeah. He's, we got in a and few, far, we, uh, we got in a few shootouts outside of his house. Uh, uh, hopefully one day I can get him on a, I can get him on a conversation podcast so he can talk about some of that, uh, some of those issues that we went through. But, uh, it was rowdy. Uh, at the end of that, I was sent back to operations. Um, again, it's Mexico. I was I was at the you know, next to the governor, and now I'm back in operations. And when I got back is when I started noticing all the changes. Um, all these people were back. Uh, I was placed in a I was placed in a, a security position with one of the directors there, and one of the guys that I still trusted, so one of the old school guys. And uh, we did a lot of work for about two years until until uh, he was moved, and I had no other place to hide in, basically, to keep off uh, going down that path. Um, I was called into the office. They were going uh, to be given new orders by the new director. And he basically said, you are either working for us or you're working against us, basically, in a clear, direct way. I, uh, I got out of the office and said I needed to work on something and figure something out. I printed out my resignation and signed it and left that same day. Um, people that were at the office couldn't figure it out. They were like, well, what's going on? Like they couldn't see me leaving, you know, I've been there for so long and leaving that job in Mexico, it's job security. There's not a lot of it in Mexico. So it's, you either have cancer or somebody wants to kill you when you leave a job like that. You know, um, well, so, but had you, so, and, and, you know, obviously you didn't, you didn't make that decision, but what were the dilemmas if you had stayed on, but refused to align with them? What do you think realistically would have happened to you? I'd be probably put in a horrible job position somewhere all the way to the bottom, uh, and be pressured and pulled, pushed out anyway, in some way, shape or form. This is what happened. Would you have been targeted for a hit? Maybe, uh, Maybe. Um, specifically, I knew I was going to be targeted if I said yes. <laughs> so um, I left. Uh, I left. Uh, I left that same afternoon. A lot of questions were around my exit. You know, like, did he find a million dollars in a wall somewhere? <laughs> like, uh, was he involved and he left because they were on to him or a bunch of rumors of that nature? Um, what year was that? Yeah, oh, that's sixteen. I think uh, no, seven, sixteen, seventeen. Yeah. Um, I was, I just, I just lost my mother probably like a, a few days before that happened. So I was going through a lot of, I was going through it. <laughs> um, my mom had a, a lot of health issues and some psychiatric issues for, for the last years of her life. And I was basically a new father taking care of her. And also I had the job that I had. So I was spread thin and I didn't have a lot of, uh, I didn't have a lot of options. Um, well, the SEALs say that's called stabbing the lifeboat. It's like you stab the lifeboat. It's like you got no choice but to make a decision now, right? So you stabbed the lifeboat. You turned in your letter. So um, what did you do? 
Well, it's funny enough you say the SEALs. Uh, uh, I had a I had a friend that I met through some of the work that I did and basically conversations uh, who's a, a Navy SEAL reservist and a beautiful wife, Kelly, um, who we had developed a friendship over, over the years. And uh, they, they offered me uh, a place to stay if anything ever happened, basically. And something did happen. You know, you want to talk about who you're like knowing who your friends are. You know, this is when you know who your friends are. It's, it's fascinating how how everybody goes away when you're when you're not who you were. You know, um, I, I I've I've I had already talked to them about this possibility of me having to leave, and they offered a place a place for me and my family to stay. And uh, I'm married to an American. And my mo- my daughter's American, so but in my mind, I'd never thought about myself going to the U.S. and living in the U.S. and doing all these things. Uh, so I didn't have a choice. <laughs> um, I, uh, they, they didn't even give me my liquidation money. Like, it was that quick and fast. It was like, leave now. I crossed the border, uh, I crossed the border into San Diego and started my process that, that same day. Man, what about your home, your belongings, all that other stuff? Abandoned. Everything got abandoned. Everything was left. It was just me, and my 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 two and a half year old at the time, in my arms, and uh, a duffel bag with uh, with just the essentials. Um, and I crossed the border, and I was I was quietly sitting in an avocado orchard that same night, uh, contemplating my next move. Uh, as a human being, uh, with, uh, my friend, uh, Dan, uh, who, giving me a shot of tequila. <laughs> well, you are in an you know, avocado orchard. Uh, what? You were in an avo- avocado yeah. orchard. Yeah. So tequila it was, it was, yeah. I mean, it was, it was the quietest I'd been for over 12 years and I used to run around with two phones, a radio, a satcom radio and, and, oh, it's uh, beyond calling now. Now you're not needed. Now I don't have anything. Now I'm naked, basically. I'm a naked skeleton uh, sitting in an avocado orchard next to another weird naked skeleton, too. In, in a way, well, we all if tequila's are. involved, there's a chance you actually were naked, but we won't uh, ask about <laughs> there, there was some nudity. There was some nudity, probably, at some point. <laughs> hey, well, before we get too far down the road on this, though, um, something that came out of your time, which is what we want to talk about now, too. You have a site called edsmanifesto.com. A lot of great stuff there. But you started, you're doing some unique stuff now, and it's based upon observations you made while you were doing the work. So let's talk about that. You started because obviously you ran into a lot of people that, whether they're kidnapped or being restrained or uh, people being taken against their will, you started noticing things. And one of them that I found interesting was there was a kid that was arrested one night, put in the back of a patrol car, and he got out of his handcuffs. And one of the other guys wanted to go, you know, whoop up on him. You said, no, 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 wait a minute. Yeah. Let me talk with him. Let me figure out how the hell did you do this? Yeah. Uh, well, I, so I grew up as a street kid in a lot of ways. Uh, I skateboarded. I was very independent from like 13 on forward, basically. I moved wait, out did, of my house. Did I just hear a rooster in the background? Oh, yeah. This is, this is how you know. This is how you know. <laughs> This is how you know. I kept, thinking, I kept thinking, wait a minute, I got my window shut this time. My cat's actually no, this, being this, quiet, and I'm going, is, I hear is, a, do I hear a my, rooster? This is on my end. This is on my end. There's a rooster <laughs> next door. Uh, I grew up as a street kid, uh, skateboarded, and did a lot of bad stuff, too, because, you know, again, never dreamed about being a cop. So I had a lot of that in me. Uh, my mom was a devout Catholic, and we grew up in my family as Guadalupano, so religion was very big. Uh, Golden rules and the Ten Commandments were drilled into me, basically. Um, so I never took anything personal. I, was, I wasn't one of those guys that was on an ego trip when I was wearing a badge or working. I saw humanity in everybody. I think two of the things that changed my life was my mom saying to me, nobody's against you, they're for themselves. You know, learn this and you will be better off. And my dad said, never let anybody own you. I think both of those things kind of kept me alive during that time. Um, every time I would grab somebody and they would showcase something interesting, I would take a picture of it. I would write down some things and, or a video, and I would uh, share it with my people. You know, hey, look at this weird thing that I just found out. A burglar 
that we found who was breaking into these high-value neighborhood places was utilizing expansion foam to drown out the sonic alarms outside of houses. And that was fascinating (laughs) that they were doing that. So I wrote that down and uh, took some pictures and shared them on a blog that I used to run, an anonymous blog that I used to run on Tumblr. Uh, It it was called uh, Ed's Manifesto. That's where it started, basically. So not only was I writing some of these downs and having conversations with some of these criminals and, and some of these people that knew things that I didn't know, I was learning from them. I was also sharing it openly. Um, when I say openly, I mean I was putting, put, posting some of these things online and like, hey, have you ever seen anything like this? And people would be like, oh, what's that? You know, um, Slowly but surely, that, uh, that uh, anonymous account gained a cult following. Then uh, switched to Facebook and then Instagram. Um, but How everything long did I was, it stay anonymous? Uh, it stayed anonymous for as long as I was still active. Basically, as soon as I, as soon as, as soon as I started, uh, as soon as I started being a bit more known publicly, when I started working for the governor of Baja, basically, and my face was on the newspaper every now and then because I was standing next to him. Um, I'd show, I'd, I'd show, I'd show a little bit more of who I was and where I was, you know. Uh, when I left the job uh, and went to the U.S., I mean, it was it was basically I figured that I had to be a bit more public with it, I guess, because there was not not a lot of other things I was doing. So I started being more in the open, showing my face more and talking a little bit more about my history while I was out. And uh, it uh, turned into a lot of training opportunities. People wanted to learn some of the things that I learned while I was well, down let's there. Let's talk about that for a second. I mean. Um, Let's talk about a couple of things that you discovered. What were a couple of things that when you discovered them, you go either like, oh, shit, that guy could have done that to me or how? I mean, at some point you asked the guy, how the hell did you think of this? Right. I mean, what 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 did you do? It's the old trick we used to teach rookies to always make sure you look up. Where did a lot of burglars, you know, you you get called out in the middle of the night. Where would they hide? They hide in a tree because a lot of times the cops wouldn't look on, you know, wouldn't look up. They'd just look on the ground. Right. That's kind of basic stuff, but what did what did what impressed you, or how did you go about finding out from these guys? How did you think about this problem? What what was the way you looked at the problem different than we were to enable you to figure out how to get out of handcuffs or flexicuffs or like using that sonic phone that you were talking about or that expansion phone? Yeah, I mean, mindset first. Uh, not being allowed to and not being able to are two completely different things. You know, that's a red pill you take. Um, these people have that red pill. They've been experimenting, utilizing monkey do monkey see experimentation, actually doing things live and seeing things and learning through experience. Um, you have a cadet coming out or a police officer coming out who is trained to basically handcuff people in a certain way. Uh, and there are people that learn how to get out of these specific situations by learning through seeing somebody go through it and figuring out how to hide things, how to conceal things. Uh, uh, we found a guy with a handcuff key uh, super glued between his fingers like that. Right. And I remember seeing that and actually being the one that searched them didn't find that. And for not, folks, we're on the podcast, folks can't see it, but you have held up like your index and your middle finger, and it's like in the V. Yeah, so he basically cut off the ring off the key and put and superglued it in between his index index and middle finger. Uh, he was handcuffed. You know, they did a shitty job handcuffing him. He didn't put him palms out and keyway up like you should. But still, he was handcuffed, and he got free. Um, couldn't figure out where that was. And through a conversation with him. And he's like, yeah, so, you know, this is like, I told him like, where'd you learn that? And it's like, oh, some weird Cuban dude showed me. Oh, cool. Where, where did he show you this? He said, oh, there's a, there's a few Cuban people around showing things like this. It's like, oh, that's cool. You know, what else did they show you? And he proceeded to take, uh, this, uh, magnet clasp off a, uh, off a, of this necklace that he had on. Um, I think he was probably a Santero or some sort of Afro-Caribbean necklace that he had on for protection. So he, he takes it, he takes it off and it has a magnet clasp on it. So he can't be strangled with it. So he's smart about that too. <laughs> um, he spun the magnet clasp on his finger and he said, put a key in your pocket. So I grabbed the handcuff key and put it in my pocket. And as he was basically sliding that magnet clasp around me doing simulating being a, doing a pat down, 
the key and the magnet reacted together. Tick. So he found a key that where it was hiding. So he said, if you want to want to search somebody and you're looking for something small and metallic, just uh, string a magnet on your finger, and you can basically carry with you a metal detector, you know, on your hand. If you're really worried about somebody hiding something of this nature, and I was like, okay, that's creepy, and I will take that into account. So I wrote that shit down, and um, along with a lot of other things that I that I basically wrote down and, and stored and practiced and figured out for myself. A lot of these things were basically learned to then show to the newer guys that were coming on our unit. So I got to tell you, when I was a rookie police officer, Salina, Kansas, one of the your rites of passage was they would do what they would call, they would it was called railing. They would handcuff you to the rails, um, you know, one arm on each side, because we had this stairway that went up to municipal court and there were these metal square rails on each side. Well, the way they'd always set it up is, um, you know, the lieutenant would call you and said, we're doing a weapons check. So, you, you know, they had the, the uh, sand pit there, you empty out your, we had revolvers, empty it out, hand it to them. And then the guys would attack you. And the goal was you had to resist. And this is back in the day when you could do that stuff. Well, I had been given a little bit of, in I'd heard somebody talking about it. And I said, well, if I ever got, if somebody ever got the drop on me and handcuffed me, what would I do? Well, we had, remember those old black leather boots you had and they had the straps on the side you'd wear them. Well, I took a, I took a spare handcuff key and I hid it inside of the straps of one of those. I cut a little thing and hid it down in there. Big mistake, my friends, because what I realized is when I, un when I uncuff myself and I think I'm being pretty smart, I got stripped down even farther next time when they handcuffed me to the rails. There was no hiding the key that I could reach anywhere there. Yeah. If you're going to do any trick like that only works once. If it, yeah. there's, there's, there's no, there's no doing it twice. I mean, if they also, the, uh, the rule is if they find one thing, you're naked. Yeah. If they oh, find one true. thing, you're naked. You Bingo. Know? I, I wasn't quite naked, but let's put it this way. There was no way I was going to be able to hide anything. So Yeah. <laughs> and a lot, of the, a lot of the ways that these guys are learning is also through hazing rituals. And hazing rituals, uh, I know the U.S. has been slowly kind of getting rid of a lot of them. Um, but they have a place. Um, I think they serve a, absolutely. I think they serve a purpose. That we got put through a lot. And every now and then I hear some horror stories of people going through the military hazing rituals in the U.S. And I'm like, uh, we were actually physically beaten with sticks and punched in the face uh, several times uh, during our training. So the but what I mean with the hazing ritual aspect of it, these guys are learning through experiences. Um when I started showing some of the stuff in the U.S., they would be like, hey, uh, did you learn this through your military training? Like, the, the, was this shown by you by some sort of specialty people? Like, no, these these are all criminal. This is all criminal method, methodology that I'm learning. So like, well, why were they sharing that with you? I mean, you'd be surprised. Some people just want to talk. Uh, if you're if you're not a piece of shit human being, give them a cigarette and uh, allow them to, you know, make a supervised call to their mother to just tell them to not worry for, because she's not going to, he's not going to make it, make it to home for Christmas. Um, you can sit down with some of these people and learn some of these things. Um, and also you don't, if, if you don't know what you're looking at, you won't, you won't see it. So once you start delving into site exploitation and, and seeing open laptops and seeing some of their browsing histories and looking at what they were looking at online, uh, it, it, you start realizing how they were kind of looking at problems. Um, we ran into a group that was abducting people at an industrial scale in, in, in Baja. And we got to see their laptops. Uh, one of them had an open laptop in the houses that one of the houses that we, we found and they were researching uh, civilian seer training in, in the United States. So they were researching how to get out of zip ties and basically fortifying their zip ties so that exploitation can be utilized on the zip ties they were putting on people. Or they were seeing uh, the the um, the proliferation of these plastic handcuff keys that were all of a sudden being put out. So they evolved their methodology so that when they would handcuff people, they would handcuff them and tie the handcuffs to their necks so they can lower them uh, uh, to get out. Um, because a lot of the businessmen and a lot of the people that were working in Baja at that time started getting counter kidnap training from Americans or from Israelis. And, uh, it's a, it's an arms race. It's always an arms race. And I think what I brought new to the, 
whole scene as far as training goes is I start getting involved in, in, in live conversations with some of these people to try and figure some of these things out. Very smart. And it's, it's led to a business for you now. It's, uh, it's more than a business. Um, I do a lot of advocacy. I, I work a lot of charities on both sides of the border. Uh, we run a program for a, a fighting school in Dolum in Mexico, basically feeding up and coming professional fighters. Uh, why, why, why professional fighters? Because they don't have any money to follow their dreams. And I was there in the past. So I'm basically trying to find ways of getting back to that, uh, aspect of my past, I guess. And, uh, there's definitely an aspect of seeing these young uh, animals, uh, training themselves up. That reminds me of a lot of the young men and women that I lost along the way working. Well, yeah. And Mexico, I mean, one thing there's a great history of is a lot of the fighters too. Man, you look at some of the great fighters, the, uh, you know, welterweights, phantomweights, whatever, but a lot of the great ones come out of Mexico. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I grew up boxing. That's why, that's how I got this nose. Uh, um, and, uh, well, I was going to say, I thought that came from the hazing and getting hit with the sticks and the <laughs> later on, <laughs> I, got, I basically, so I, I thought I, I thought about getting a nose job. And then after the fourth break working, I was like, nah, I'll just I'll just carry around these pencils and just straighten out myself. <laughs> Two times for me, but yeah, same thing. It's like you get that little uh, deviation, the scar tissue that b- builds up in there. Get got to get a septoplasty done because yeah. I was I got to the point I couldn't even breathe out of my nose. I, I used to whistle at night for about half a year, and then I got my nose broken for the eighth time. And by your it. wife, who said I've had enough of this? <laughs> <laughs> Somebody <laughs> did, maybe. I don't remember exactly who did it. You know, but. Uh, a lot of the aspects of the work that we do now is, you know, advocacy is speaking out on a lot of these things. I know there's not, not a lot of people like me out there in the U S right now uh, that have a voice. Um, I, when you say you're advocate, but what things are you specifically advocating and speaking out about? I know you're talking about the training, the fighters, but what are the issues that are most important to you that you want to talk about? First off, awareness, uh, awareness of some of the loss and death that happened in Mexico uh, versus the stuff that's happened in the United States. Like I, I raised a, a bit over $4,000 for the Ryan Terry Foundation about three years ago. Uh, I did that to prove a point. One, I'm Mexican, and I raised that amount of money for uh, a Border Patrol agent that was killed by some of the Fast and Furious guns. Which but we I had also, Pete Forselli on, the ATF agent. That was the whistleblower on that, yeah. And, but nobody's talking about a lot of the people that are on my side that got killed by those guns. Um, and nobody's raising money for them. Uh, two of my friends got killed by those guns, FN 5.7 pistols. One of them was shot outside of his house with his wife. And uh, I think a big part of the, 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 the big part of the conversation that I'm having out there um, is around the fact that we are not as separate as some some people want to make us uh, look out. You know, I'm Mexican. I'm very conservative in my views. I love the fact that you can have a gun and you can take responsibility for yourself here in the United States. We're not that dissimilar politically. Um, but something happens to the people that come after the first generation that make it here and uh, they get politicized and they start forgetting about where they came from and some of the issues that their families were fleeing. Um, I think the vision is very hurtful for both sides of this, uh, of this issue. Um, I mean, I came up here and uh, did my immigration process during the election of Donald Trump and it was not an easy process for me to kind of go through. Um, there's a there's a definitely a lot of issues on both sides of the border that are very much regional. This whole aspect of build a wall and build it high is not going to work and it hasn't worked in the past. And this whole aspect of open borders is not working as well and hasn't worked in the past. So what comes next? Well, on both sides of the border, we have basically trade partners second largest trade partner for the U.S. And Mexico very much depends on the remesas sent back from all the immigrant workers that are working in your industries, uh, service industries and farms and a bunch of other. Western Union sends a ton of money across the border. So we're basically dependent on each other. Uh, Illegal immigration is illegal because it has to be according to the powers that be. Um, 
there is violence that happens across the border and there's violence that happens in the United States. Uh, the cartels are very much within the United States operating. It's not a foreign issue. It's, it's happening. The Sinaloa cartel was probably born in Los Angeles. So a, a lot of these issues have been not only politicized, but also been cut down a straight line as uh, being a Mexico problem and a U.S. problem. The U.S. has been installing presidents in Mexico and putting them on the CIA payroll for, for, for at least the 50s on forward. Um, we, don't, we don't know exactly to when because that's not going to be declassified until who knows when, but at least two presidents from the 60s uh, have been known to be on that payroll. So that's something to think about as far as responsibility and how some of these things have come to happen. Um, well, we, if they're on the CIA payroll, who's paying them more money, though, the CIA or the cartels? Well, I think that is an interesting question, and I think we should see where that line is. Because there's, there has to be a line somewhere, and uh, we can talk to the people that live through the Kiki Kamarena situation to see what that line is. We don't know. I don't know. That's something beyond my experience. Um, there's responsibility on both sides. And I think I'm, that's what I'm trying to advocate, um, that there is responsibility on both sides. Both, both sides have their hands covered in blood. Uh, but both sides also have a dependency on each other, which is so strange. Uh, there's the saying in Mexico, uh, Mexico far from God, but close to the United States. You know, that's, that's a saying we have in Mexico, and, and, and it's sad to say that. Um, we're, we're united by blood. Tijuana, 90% of all new housing in Tijuana is being bought up by Americans. Why? There's, because Americans can't afford to live in California. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay, that point made there. Yeah, There's, it's cheaper to go across the border. and So all the, the screams about Mexico being very dangerous and gunshots and all that, and we have a shit ton of uh, migrants from the economy living in Mexico. I had to do a briefing for people that were going over to visit Israel for the first time. And so I said, let me give you a briefing. I said, so how would you react if I told you last weekend um, in Tel Aviv, there were 17 people shot, you know, uh, 25 wounded, you know, four killed, eight killed. Would you guys go? Oh, no, we wouldn't go. Yet every one of you would hop on a plane and go to Chicago the next day. I said, those were headlines from Chicago. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's there's there's issues on both sides. But I think. As the economy is shifting, the globalism is gone. It's going away. China isn't your friend. Um, making, things in chi making things in China is probably not your best bet. But who has uh, comparable uh, abilities to, to build, construct, and, 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 and supply the United States? Mexico. And that's absolutely right. And they're looking at shifting. A lot of people have shifted to Vietnam and India for manufacturing stuff. Apple's actually looking at bringing stuff back. Here to do that because they depend on Foxconn and, you know, too many people in China. Hey, I wanted to ask you because you brought up something. Have you, uh, I mentioned Pete Forselli's name, but do you know Pete Forselli or have you ever talked with him? I haven't. No. You, you know, Murph, this would also, because Pete's got a new book coming out and it's called, uh, he wrote an original book, but his upcoming book, The Deadly Path, How Operation Fast and Furious and Bad uh, Lawyers Armed Mexican Cartels. That would be very interesting to get him and Pete on the same podcast because Pete was the whistleblower on Operation Fast and Furious. He is on a mission to expose the corruption that happened on that side, and he got targeted because of that. Yeah, I mean, I have a picture with some of those, some of those guns that we found buried in a backyard uh, inside of a water barrel uh, in 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 Baja. Um, the the federal government in Mexico was probably involved in that in some way or knew about it at a high level. I think Luna probably knew about it. At, at some in some way, shape, or form. From our end, we learned that it was an operation that stemmed back to the Bush administration. I don't know if it's true or not, but that's the briefing that we got later on about it. Um, well, I think there were always operations to try and trace these things. I think where things went south, figuratively and literally, is when they decided to let these guns walk and yeah. just see where they ended up as opposed to, I mean, Murph, we talked about even with DA, right? I mean, it, you, you guys would not let 100 kilos walk. No. I mean, you can't even let an ounce walk without getting the approval from the attorney general. Yeah, we were seeing in the box 50 cal Barrett's with the instruction manuals. We were seeing P90s, FN57s, like something a kid would would order online for their new cartel. Basically stuff that they couldn't get or couldn't figure out what to get. So 
FN57s and P90Us a specific round, and they quickly realized that the round was harder to get than the rifle. So it's, it's, it wasn't even done in a smart way. So I, it was basically, hey, what guns do you need? These, cool. We, and also, there's a free pass going on right now. So like, get the most of them that you can. Um, everything, and, and clearly coming from the U.S., because a lot of these things were pawned and or sold with uh, Magpul Dynamics stuff on them. Uh, Civilian uh, civilian um, switches on them, basically semi-automatic uh, automatics, which are meaningless in Mexico. You can machine that part quickly and just drop it in um, and turn them into full autos. Um, so but it was clear everything was coming from the U.S. and it was, it was like day and night flooding of weapons of new out of the box stuff with EOTEX on it. You know, well, a uh, reporter got a hold of a internal ATF email, but it's apparently, well, I should say internal, it's going out to firearms dealers. Listen to this. It comes from a ATF uh, FFL alert, you know, the federal firearms license. Uh, it's it's you for unclassified. So uh, they're sharing it. But law enforcement is advising federal firearms licensees of expanding interest of criminal networks intention to utilize straw purchasers in acquiring large caliber firearms such as 50 caliber and or belt fed rifles within the next 60 days. This activity is anticipated to occur through the entire state of Texas. Please contact your local ATF offices, blah, blah, blah. I mean, um, yeah, I mean, this this is this is ongoing. And now they're like you say, they're crossing the border just like they do with marijuana. We had an episode with a guy named John Norris, who was a conservation officer in California. You you, you know, John? Yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah, his. yeah, we, we had talked. him on. Yeah, talking about the impact, the, the the environmental impact the cartels have had out in California, the billions of you know waters. To your point, you can make it legal all you want. Well, now the cartel is crossing over. Not only that, but you see things like this, and you wonder. Are they just going to arm up on this rather than trying to, you know, they just get, trying to bring guns across the border? They'll just come over here and buy them legally or, you know, illegally, but they're going to arm up on this side. Yeah. I mean, I think we're, we're heading into this no return zone. The border right now is being controlled by two or two, three organizations, but there's no large swath of it, important swath of it next to a giant drug market that is controlled by the new generation cartel. Not yet. They're working on it in Baja. When that happens, now there's a corridor for them to move and grow within the United States. Uh, there's a case to be made about gang violence lowering itself in the United States in the early 2000s because of the Sinaloa cartel dominance in drug markets in the U.S. There's a case to be made because of that. Uh, because they went in and basically said, you know, chill out. We're in charge now. This is how we supply and distribute. There's a few other competitors out there. Yeah, I, I know. But there's a case to be made for the fact that they came in and calmed things down because there's no longer a, like a real competition as far as distribution from Mexico. What's going to happen when the new generation cartel has a clear footing into a large dark market like California? Competition. You know, that's what you see in Mexico. Mexico's violence is because local drug markets are being fought over. And distribution routes. That's the violence in Mexico. The next step is for that to happen in the United States. You know, it's amazing that the, the cartels haven't figured that set that out themselves in Mexico. Because if they did join forces and stick together and, you know, I mean, I know it's egos in a way and, and greed, all the factors that go along with that. But, I mean, they would pretty much be unstoppable. I, I, I think these two organizations, the Sinaloa Cartel and the New Generation Cartel, are at odds in as far as being able to ally themselves. There's too much blood already spilt between them. I think the danger is if they make it to the U.S. and have a clear pathway into it, basically the control of a large section of the border wall and what goes under it and through it, drug tunnels, et cetera. Now you have a group that can arm itself and operate itself on both sides of the border without the scrutiny of the United States seeing how they're moving. Um, and also now they're going to be competing in a very direct way in the, in, within the United States for markets. So you're going to see high level hits being carried out in places like us. You already see them. That's already happening, but like high level, I mean like 40 people showing up to a town to execute somebody, you know, um, uh, more armed incursions into the United States from Mexico, which is already happening. 
You know, mm-hmm. people on the Texas border can tell you about this more than oh, I yeah. can. We had border agents being shot at, law enforcement officers, you know, being shot at. I mean, it's the, the rounds coming across the border um, just increasing. Yeah. Because now imagine that's one cartel operating on the border, basically fighting off the Border Patrol. Now imagine two cartels fighting each other and the Border Patrol in the, in the middle of that. It's it's it's, it's going to be it's it's an interesting open warfare setting. It's already happening in certain ways on the border in Baja and other parts of Texas where there's there's conflict for the border, and all there's going to be all that's going to be there all that there's going to be is as far as an option is containment. Um, but again, the cartels are already in in the United States. I mean, Operation Anaconda I think arrested about eighty members of the New Generation Cartel in a sweep they did probably four years ago or something like that. And, um, you know, I travel across the country and I, every now and then I get people uh, from some agencies sending me pictures of equipment of, of, uh, clandestine altars to Santa Muerte or to Malverde. And basically I'm tasked to, Hey, what do you think these mean? Because that's a part another part of my consultant, uh, see, uh, efforts. Um, and I can tell him like, well, this, this altar is basically made by a Jalisco member. How do you know? Well, he's utilizing this and this, and that's a Jalisco thing. And, and they're carrying around, uh, sub guns and pistol calibers. That's a very specialized thing. And it's something I recognize from a certain group of people that I, we went after. So that's probably means that they're here. You know, you start detecting stuff like that and it's, it's already happening. You know, this is already here. In our in our conversation with John Norris, it just it it just boggles your mind that the legislators in the different states that are in favor of legalization don't do any research first. You know, there there's no attempt to see what are the potential consequences if we do this. All they're seeing is tax dollars. They can throw out the idea that uh, um, you know, oh yeah, we're you know this will stop Mexican marijuana coming across. No, it's not. And we've had uh, a former member of the Mexican mafia on here twice. Uh, goes by the, the street name of Mundo. You probably know him, you know. And he's telling us that the, the Mexican mafia is playing the California legislation like a fiddle, and they're too they're too naive, or their egos are in the way, and they won't admit it. Yeah, I mean, in, in Colorado, they're utilizing the uh, the loopholes around the money uh, movements around marijuana to basically launder a shit ton of money for the cartels. They're already there, figuring that out. Right. So it's a, it's a game of shit. It's a, it's a game of chess and they're, they're very much involved in it. And I've been in Seattle and witnessed federally funded crack pipes and needles being filled with heroin from hillsides in Mexico that I've been to, you know, as, as somebody that's, I went through a lot of scrutiny to be in the U.S. Um, and to migrate, and a lot. <laughs> and I pay my taxes, and I have four employees, and I do my best to make my environment better, and I try and help out anybody I can. And I'm very, mu- I very much consider me being in the United States a responsibility more than a than a privilege. Um, and going there and, be, and and going there and posting about it my my post got taken down by Instagram when i said it's amazing to me that i'm in seattle witnessing a bunch of needles on the ground that were federally provided being filled with fentanyl from china that was sent to mexico and was grown into heroin and put into heroin and then it's up here and now they're now with the grounds littered with this and somehow the U.S. is trying to figure out if cartels are a terrorist organization or not, and somehow they're involved in a drug war, which I was a part of for years. It's a joke. It's hard for some. It's it exactly for me. It's that somebody lost a lot for this. You know, when I say a lot, I mean I lost a home. I, I lost a bunch of my friends. Um, I, lo- I lost a lot of sleep and a marriage, uh, all because of this giant conflict. And I still think that there is something to be done. I just don't know who's going to be able to do it with the extent of uh, corruption that I see at different levels. And yes, corruption is something it's 
commonly known of in Mexico, but it's also in the United States in a big way. Again, nobody's immune. Well, look, let's make you HMFIC for a year, right? What would would Ed Calderon, HMFIC, you familiar with that term? No. Head motherfucker in charge. <laughs> you are HMFIC. You you are the czar. You, you, I mean, it's like, how do we come, what is the plan we come up with? How do we come up with it? And how do we do it in such a way? Look, I don't, I'm not naive enough to think we get rid of everything, but how do we get, how do we get it back down to a point to where people, communities can thrive without being dependent upon the cartels? How do we stop this transnational shipment, you know, fentanyl, things like that? How do we address the cartel issue? So you're HMFIC for a year. What would you, what would his excellently, excellency Ed Calderon do if you had the power to do it? Naval blockade and search and seizure of every single ship coming from China into Mexico, number one. That would be the, the priority thing to basically cut the supply chain from China into the into Mexico. It's a national security thing. I don't know what the legalities of that would be. I've heard and seen Trump basically do something similar on the Atlantic side of the ocean uh, during a, a operation where the Navy was very much involved uh, doing counter-narcotic stuff on that side of the ocean, and I saw the effects of that had. Number one, I would, first off, clearly designate that China was not our friend in that aspect and is very much a sponsor of this uh, effort being done to the United States. You know, uh, their banking industry and their their uh, their industry in general is being utilized as a tool of mass destruction in the United States. So basically have a conversation about that and do something about it first. Some sort of Navy blockade and or sort of Navy search and seizure of these ships coming in and out of Mexican ports. That's number one. Um, number two... I think we're past any sort of solution that involves the Mexican federal government. I mean, I, I, I think uh, there's two heads on uh, th- two sides of the same snake, um, cartels and government. It's hard to tease them out where one stops and where, where one begins. Uh, I think there's no clear solution that involves the Mexican government as it is right now. I don't, I don't see it. And when I say the Mexican government, the military is very much involved in this. And I mean, we have somebody here that uh, that talked about and worked with them for a while, and not just myself, that was involved in some of these conversations. I'm sure you got the impression that uh, an American friend of us, I think that's this, I think this is from the Departed movie, told us this once when he was working with us in Mexico. He said, he said hey, so what do you know about these guys? It's like, not a lot. It's like, you do know something more, right? Yeah, yeah. But we're, 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 we're taking the, uh, the, the, treating you like mushrooms, you know, feed them shit and keep them in the dark aspect of it. Um, I don't think they're to be trusted realistically. And we've, we can go back in history to see all of the amounts of times that have been compromised and people and information has, has been um, switched. I mean, El Chapo Guzman's head of security was a member of the, was a member of the elite uh, GAFE, uh, special forces of the military. So that, that's something that doesn't get talked about a lot. Um, this is uh, this is a situation I think that is beyond any sort of program implementation, working with or trying to figure things out of that nature. I think on my end, I I could be wrong, but I I don't see anything other than a, an open conflict in the future for for both sides. I mean, there, there's 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 something that's coming, and I think uh, we're beyond any sort of a policy that involves. Uh, liaison coordination counter narcotic stuff i mean the united states has been paying for that drug war for decades when i first got on the job the best effort the federal government can do is put a bunch of guys in the back of a truck and patrol the streets that was over a that was almost 20 years ago now what do you think they're doing right now with that taxpayer money that's being sent down there for for this uh Plan Medi, that they call it, uh, paying for a lot of these police cars and fuel and salaries and weaponry. They're doing exactly the same thing. Mm-hmm. Same thing. Nothing has changed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So as U.S. tax uh, paying people as we are, why don't we audit where that money is being spent and why nothing has changed and actually how, why things have gotten worse? Uh, we could be talking say, about uh, Mexico or Ukraine. Yeah. Well, we've got an organization that's responsible for that, but, you know, the hell, they can't even pass a budget for the United States government, which, you know, 20 years from now, we know on September 30th, we need a damn budget in place. Yeah, I'm trying to think how long that's been the case, Murph. I mean, I know when you were in government, yeah, before, yes, like forever, October 1st, the beginning of a new fiscal year, let's have something in place by September 30th, you know. (laughs) Outrageous. 
Yeah. Outrageous. Hey, we're, um, just, we're becoming the laughing stock of the world here. But, but is is it a sli- is it a slow slide into oblivion, or is there is there um, is there an end game here that if we can do if we can do some things now, we can reverse where we're at again. Never get to the point of where everything's hunky dory, but could we get back to the point to where we can neuter the cartels the same way you felt like uh, your team got neutered? You know, you're brought in, and is there a way to neuter them, or are they just is it? Are we past the point with that? The too much of the toothpaste is out of the tube now. I think too much of the toothpaste is out of the tube. Uh, and I think too much of Latin America is no longer your friends, <laughs> um, including Mexico and several uh, segments of society in Mexico. Um, Trump did a lot of good things and did a lot of bad things. And I think one of the biggest mistakes he made was making an enemy out of a whole country uh, with his rhetoric. Um, th- it stuck. And people have been utilizing that against U.S. interests for the past few decades, a decade, I, I guess. Um, there's no better place to like when, when talk about social economic decline and all that stuff in the U S being of, you know, on the downward, I, I see it, you know, I feel it. Um, I was in the United States for the, uh, cancel the police effort and, uh, I go to different, uh, training academies across the country and I see the empty rooms and the, uh, lowering of standards and nobody wants to be a cop anymore in the U S and places where there's no cop responses and. I, I could see that, but still there's no other place I would rather be even with all that. And I'm an immigrant and I've been through some shit. And I, I recently talked to my a friend of mine who left Mexico uh, and joined the IDF. He was a uh, part of an elite border uh, team that did direct action missions and in, in some gnarly places. Amazing dude. Uh, he again, a Mexican immigrant, went to Israel, fought a war out there, and then moved to the United States. And I told him, like, what's the American dream? And he says, it comes in stages. Number one, get a truck. Number two, uh, get a uh, build a gym in your garage. And number three, uh, guns. Right? And I was like, why? It's like, why? Why? Why do? Why do we as immigrants see that? And I think it's basically having the a government or a constitution that gives you that responsibility. It's, and I think it's a responsibility. It's not a right. It should be, should be focused on more as a responsibility. The responsibility to keep yourself safe and keep your family safe and also to be able to maintain the ability to do that. So a gym and a gun range so you can maintain that ability. And a big-ass truck. There's no other that. place on the planet that allows <laughs> you that. And I think that is what we're fighting for. And that's what I'm fighting for, too. I want my daughter to be able to, 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 to see that when she's older. We challenge our listeners to, uh, not all our listeners, but um, anybody that is unhappy living here in the United States, go live in a third world country. Just go down for a year and then see if that changes your opinion. If you're anti-gun, go down to Michoacan and have a cartel member show up and say which one of your dirt, uh, pretty daughters he wants to take out for a night and be the guy in that conversation without a gun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And again, I've I've been in places like that, so that's Not why outrageous. I moved to Texas. <laughs> yeah, Damn. unfortunately, we have uh, we have very short memories here in the United States. It's you know we saw what happened in nine eleven, and it actually galvanized our country, but it didn't last very long, did no. it? Uh, and then the, then it wears off. And to your point, you get amnesia, you get fatigue, people forget what happened. And we go through this all again. Look, I can't think of a better way to kind of bring this to a close. Those three things, right? Guns, a gym. Are a big truck, a gym, and guns, right? <laughs> that's that's got to go on a T-shirt somewhere. Hey, but before, but we would be remiss. We need to let's finish off by talking about uh, EdsManifesto.com. What it, it can is it, are these things the public signs up for? Is this law enforcement? Tell us about your organization and what you're providing. Yeah, I I provide consultancy for companies, uh, federal agencies, the military, you name it. I've I've worked with them. Uh, I have a wealth of knowledge, and I don't want it to go to the grave with me. Instead of writing a book or selling this stuff online, I legit want to go out there and share it directly to people. So I do classes across the country as well. Uh, they're open to the public. I post them on my uh, on my website, edsmanifesto.com. Um, we show people how to survive in places that are not friendly to your presence there. So we've trained people that are involved in Doctors Without Borders, uh, people going off to war zones to report on the news, um, people that just want to go to places that are kind of scary and they want to be prepared for it. 
Um, so we go into that uh, type of training for people, and pe- if people are interested, they can they can go on our web- website and see what that's about. And we also run a uh, Patreon page where I share a lot of the online training material. So if people can't go out to a class, they can join us there. And where I share a lot of the on the road antics we we get into, like I legit am a new member of the American experience, and I make it a point to go and learn from everybody and anybody that wants to show me things that are related to this experience. So, well, I'm going to give you a clue. If you ever go to Minnesota or the North Country up there, do not eat lutefisk. Lutefisk. <laughs> I remember yeah. eating. Uh, so, can I uh, a few experiences that I had? I went to yeah, Tennessee. I went to Tennessee and I saw a bunch of people dancing with snakes. Those snakes are real. It's not a trick. <laughs> Amazing experience. You want to, Americans go to Mexico to go to bullfights and cockfights? I'm Mexican. Snake. I went to the U.S. <laughs> went to see a bunch of white people dancing with snakes. Amazing experience. Um, then I went to uh, then I went to Phoenix and I saw a bunch of people hanging themselves from metal hooks and got to experience that. Oh, that was, that, that oh, was I've amazing. Seen that. Yeah. And then I go to uh, you know machine gun shoots and shot show and anime conventions and comic conventions and go to speak to universities about what's happening in Mexico and get yelled at by um, by people that are three generations into this country and forgot about all that and they're calling me a warmonger or some bullshit like that. It's it's been an amazing experience. I'm grateful for all of it. Um, there is no other place in the world where I, where, where I would rather be. And even with all the flaws that it has, and that should say something to people. I'm looking at your uh, Instagram account here. You've got 328,000 followers here. So folks, check him out at Ed's Manifesto. Um, Do you still have a podcast? Yeah, uh, it's a Manifesto Radio podcast that's on YouTube. I basically go and speak to people that are like me that went through the whole experience of coming up in a bad place, fighting for it, or fighting somewhere, and coming back from it, and uh, kind of showcasing some of their, their experiences. I've had members of Dev Group on uh, that now run Heroes for Horses programs where veterans come back and Oh, yeah. PTSD. Yeah, absolutely. Per- great. Those animals are just magnificent. To the guy that I arrested on murder charges in Mexico, and now we're friends, um, Conejo, a rapper who who kind of kind of uh, turned his life around. Um, and I recently had uh, Lisa Ola on, my former boss, and uh, uh, we talked for about four hours about some of the stuff we went through. Um, so if people want to kind of check out that side of my story, it's, it's out there on YouTube at uh, Manifesto Radio Podcast. Is that in English or Spanish? Both. Okay. I can do both. <laughs> No kidding. You speak Spanish? Yeah, okay. <laughs> I, I could speak Spanish with an Engl- with a gringo accent. You want to hear that? Yeah, let's hear it. Uh, mucho gusto. Mi nombre es Ed Calderon. Me gustaría decirles que Chipotle es el mejor restaurante de comida mexicana. There you go. Enjoy that. Chipotle. That's, that's Chipotle. 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 Gringo say it. Chipotle. Tortillas Chipotle. and all that. Tortillas and donde es baños there, amigo? Every now and then I go. Every now and then I travel into Mexico. I'll switch to that accent. And I get treated really differently. <laughs> I ate at Chipotle last night down in Miami. Yeah, and you're paying for it too, pal. I saw you run to the bathroom three times during this podcast. <laughs> if you want botulism, you know where to eat it. Hey, but Ed, I, first of all, dude, thanks you for doing this. Uh, this is us seriously, us saluting Absolutely. you. Thank you for your service to your home country. Thank you for your service to this country. Mm-hmm. Uh, bienvenidos. You know, welcome to the United States. Estado de Unidad. You know, um, appreciate the fact that you did it legally. Um, you've gone through the slings and arrows, you know what it's like, and gives you the credibility to talk about stuff. But what I really appreciate more, it a lot of times cops, they get they, they want to hold on to stuff. It's my information. I don't want to share. You're one of those great exceptions to the rule of where you want to share everything you know with everybody and make everything better. And huge thumbs up to you for doing that. Yeah. And I'll I'll just add to that, Ed. It's it's been an honor to have you on here. I know you're a busy man. We had to wait quite a while to get you on here, so thank you for giving us the time. But also, just like Morgan said, sharing the information you have to American law enforcement, American operators, so that it may help them somewhere down the road to save their lives. So, you know, you're becoming a patriot here in the United States. I'm glad to have you up here with us. I wish I could do more and tell and trust me, like every now and then I go out to to show some of the young guys that are going off to different places to just, you know, put boot to ass. Um, 
it was very costly to get some of this experience. And I can't, for the life of me, think about going to the grave with it. So, uh, God bless America. God save Mexico. And thank you for having me on. And God bless you. Uh, you perfect, perfect way to end this. So you don't go anywhere. Everybody else, stay tuned for the debrief. I'll tell you what is deceptive about Ed. What's that? Is that um, he's he's really he's he's kind of quiet. He's not, he's not like, he doesn't yell and scream. He, I mean, he, you he got emotional about some stuff mm-hmm. talking about the friends that he lost, but he is deceptively, um, smart. And what I mean by that is that a lot of people listen, will watch him maybe move and think, I oh, kind of slow, kind of nice guy, but what he's done, what he's looked, what he's figured out, man, uh, just, and what he went through and still maintained his sense of composure, his sense of decency, mm-hmm. his sense of humanity. Can you imagine going through that, having that many of your friends killed or living in a situation like that where the cartels are, you know, you're dealing with them every single day? Well, and, and then be presented with a situation where, okay, what are you going to do? You know, because your old boss is gone, you've got a new guy coming in that's potentially corrupt, uh, and and asking him to make a decision on the spot. I wouldn't even or, say potential. I mean, all of this when his yeah. boss left, everybody was on the take. And his, you know, and, and his decision was he went and got in his car. He went home, got his shit, and he fled. I mean, how, how much closer to death can you come than that? Packed Knowing up his wife, his kid, whatever he could carry in a duffel bag, and that was it. He left everything behind. And and I hope that the uh, the law enforcement or, or future law enforcement that's listening to this podcast, I hope you learn from him that he's continuing to learn. You never. I, I used to say when I was still on the job, if if you think it, you know it all already, but just because you've been on the job a long time, I don't want you working for me. I don't want you working with me because you're going to get yourself or somebody else killed. The criminals are continually evolving. Ed makes it a point to learn from the criminals because that's how you defeat them. You know, the, the things that he found out, he took the time. And, and like you said, you just treated somebody with respect. Maybe you gave him a cigarette. Maybe you let him make a phone call. But that's how you learn from the from the evil element that's out there so we can defeat him in the future. This was a, I love this podcast. This was outstanding. Yeah. And I think we're going to team him up, like we said, with Pete Forcelli, because um, we want to talk about Operation Fast and Furious. His big mission in life is to talk about all the deaths on the other side of the border. When we got done, um, he says he doesn't, he, he's not getting those threats from the cartel. He worries more about the government and people trying to shut him up and keep him from doing stuff. But it's interesting. He said he'd love to talk to Eric Holder, who was the AG during Fast and Furious. And Mm. I know Pete Forcelli's got some uh, strong opinions about AG Holder, about this whole Fast and Furious thing. You know, when Pete's book, Pete's book doesn't come out until March of next year, but I'm I'm really looking forward to it. I was, uh, I got, he sent me an advanced copy so I could read through the whole thing. And it is so eye-opening. And it's not just ATF leadership or lack of leadership. Wait till you read about the U.S. Attorney's Office, the, the negligence that was there, the, the, the big ad- attitudes, the big egos that, you know, I'm an attorney. You can't question me. I don't have time for you. When you're re- you, your decisions are resulting in deaths. But we're getting on a whole different topic here. I'm, I'm looking forward to having Pete back on the show. Yeah. Well, and I think that'll be, I think we get him and um, Ed on at the same time. That'll be a hell of a discussion. I think you and I'll sit there and just be quiet and let those two talk. <laughs> let them, well, so welcome to the show and say thank you for joining us. And that'll Absolutely. be our contribution. <laughs> uh, Maybe the one, one of the easiest ones we ever do. Well, speaking of an easy thing to do, it's easy to have great guests on like this. So let's bring this to a close here. We hope you guys enjoyed that episode. If you did, head on over to Apple, Spotify, hit those five stars. Let us know what you think about it. It's magic. We don't know how it works. We just know it really helps us. Also, head on over to Game of Crimes podcast.com. That's where you'll find out about Ed's manifesto.com, uh, the book that he wrote, the things that are available. So make sure you head on over there. Follow us on that thing called social media at Game of Crimes on Twitter, Game of Crimes podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. But make sure you join us at patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. We have a ton of good content. We'd like to, we've got our Q and a coming out. We've got our case of the month that we just did. Um, we've got, uh, our, we actually did our narcometer review, um, uh, Sicario day of the soldado. Mm-hmm. 
that was one of the best movies I think we've seen when we since we started doing Narcometer. It was a hell of a lot better than Miami Vice. <laughs> Fucking A. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that, everyone. I've apologized like a thousand times, and I guess I'll continue to. Yeah, well, if, you, if you're not on Patreon, you won't understand what we're talking about. But we got a lot of concurrence that, oh, that hurt. That one hurt. But hey, we're not going to hold it against you. At, at, only after another three or four months, we won't hold it against you. But hey, but seriously, head on over to patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. That's where all the good stuff is. And we want to thank you guys. Thank you guys for joining us. You know, leave comments. Let us know what you think about it, because this is how we get these great guests. So thank you guys for playing along. Thank you guys for being players in the biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all, the Game of Crimes. Game of Crimes.